would be good if I turned it on like that. You know what happened in the last two minutes, since I, which I'm ha- which I'm happy for. When I came in the door, I met. Oh, it's this. Maybe it's this. That. How about? No, that's okay. Now I go. I know, but I don't know how to do it, Nancy. <laughs> I think if you come over here, wait a minute, if I clip this in the back, that's what makes it work. There you go. Okay, we're good. It's great because I arrived like five minutes ago. And in the five minutes in coming in, I met a number of people who I hadn't seen in a while who are here again. And it so perks up your mood. It does mine. Oh, look at that one. Oh, look at that one. And I'm, it really was like, I, I'm so happy about it. First of all, I'm happy to see the people I haven't seen in a while. And second of all, I'm glad that my mood was picked up. Because one of the things I want to talk about today, well, it's really on the topic of how good that we, we are together as a group. Because coming together in a group of like-minded people, we are not all the people in the world, but we are, all the people in this room are people who would like to preserve peace, who would like to share equitably with the whole world, who would like for the, uh, for the planet to continue to live and among other things, I spent yesterday afternoon seeing um, An Inconvenient Truth, the sequel. How many people saw that? Well, I, you know, I thought that it would not, maybe, I, I don't know what I thought. I got an email from one of my friends saying you should see this, so we went to see it. And I remember the first Inconvenient Truth, and it was upsetting and I'll tell you some more about it after a while, but it begins with um, the sound of ice melting and an up-close view of the underneath of a glacier that's melting. And you get such a sinking feeling you know, that, that doesn't go away in, uh, through the whole movie. Uh, one of the really extraordinary things, I was thinking about it early this morning when I was writing my notes for this morning is that um, Al Gore who looks uh, older uh, I think it was the, I think it was 2000 the year that uh, he lost the presidential election so uh, or didn't lose it and uh, <laughs> that the Supreme Court decided that he lost it so he looks 17 years older and more round in the face and uh, uh, more vulnerable, more, um, uh, more emotional at, at some point. Yeah, he tears up when he's talking about something. And at the end, after it, it doesn't have a hopeful end, uh, 
except that he says we should feel hopeful about, and so there are things to feel hopeful about. What he's been doing, by the way, not to leave you up in the air about that, is he's been training groups all over the world to do climate change education. And I didn't write down, I have my pen out in the movie, but I didn't write down the numbers of groups that he's trained all over the world. And they show you pictures of him training here and here and here. Just people to teach in their communities about climate change. And I think he's... uh, It's the same sort of feeling that the end of uh, Naomi Klein's book, uh, No Is Not Enough, uh, that it, and I, I talked a little bit about it last week. In that book, uh, it's all—it's very bleak what's going on. But then, but her her point is that the redemptive end could be that people get out and educate each other, and that the force of people in the world who get to know the truth and go out and talk to other people is going to make the difference. That really. Um, I thought that would happen some years ago with the Arab Spring, but it didn't happen enough. But and then with Occupy, and it didn't happen enough. But maybe this will happen enough because it's everybody's planet that's melting. So I was going to say, so it was great that I came in here in a good mood, so we could do, and I just <laughs> unmooded myself. <laughs> No, what's great is that we really have community and we can come and say, I'm not the only person in the world who thinks this has to happen. Other people in the world think it has to happen. And 150 countries, heads of state, came together in Paris and did sign the Paris Peace Accord. And it didn't happen out of the blue that that happened. And very important all the very important and almost very important, but 150 countries were there, and we signed it as well. And of course now it's in in abeyance, but our whole government is, so maybe we'll retake it up again. But uh, the idea of community and people that share my values. So first of all, look around and see who's here. These are all people who share your values. Ace is not here today, so I have to remember to say, who is here today for the first time? Never here before. Oh, what's your name? John. Where do you live? Uh, Santa Oh, well, that's great that you came. Why did you come today? That's great. Thank you for that. Please feel very welcome and come again. It's not always me, but half the time it's me. More or less. Who else? Everybody else? Yes. What's your name? Hello, Sarah. Uh, Why did you come today? I'm very happy that Paul is here and that you're here. This is a really good community. I would say the same thing about her and this community. And the rest of us have been here before. We are a community, aren't we? Really. Really, really.
you know what we could do before we sit? This would be a sweet thing. It's good for the mood. Um, well, wait a minute. Before we do that, just remember the ace isn't here. Okay. So if he were... <laughs> oh, wait, two things. Ace's uh, life partner, wife, Brahmani, is here. And uh, Brahmani has a... a, a um, what do you call it? Announcement to make about... Tell about Santa Cruz. I'll find the picture. I don't know where the picture is, so just tell about it. I am too. It's it's been. It's December It's something like that. <laughs> but if if you go online and you uh, look for um, fourteen forty multiversity retreats in uh, programs in December, and the thing that Brahmini and I and to show to do together, we've been doing for 10 years here and there and other places, is uh, we come together with a group and we spend time where we move from sitting meditation, and I teach about Dharma and we meditate, uh, to movement meditation, which they are very skilled in, uh, well, in Kripalu style yoga teacher, they're there. Their credentials are Kripalu yoga, but they're much more than that. They're extraordinary yoga teachers who will then, in their movement session, recapitulate the Dharma that we've just learned together, often in the very same words, but moving through the body. That's why it's called wisdom in every cell. And uh, it's amazing for me because when I finish talking and we sit and we talk and we sit, then I get up and I go in my place in the room and I'm moving and they're saying, and I hear them say the same things that I just said. But now they're coming out through my body, which is pretty amazing. So it's a really... uh, <laughs> we will we'll be, and this is near the weekend before that we'll do that in Garrison Institute in, in New York but this is right near you don't have to get on a plane you just go down to Santa Cruz um, anyway look online 1440 Ace if you were here would say Take a minute to greet the people next to you and make sure that they feel welcome.
looking at the black people. We look good. Look, the three of you have blue shirts. Show it to me. You know, at the end of the time that we sit, we um, we have uh, the custom of uh, being invited. I'll, I'll say now in a minute or two, or a few minutes, I'm going to ring the bell, and uh, if you'd like, uh, in the next period while we still sit together, mention the name of people or something that you're thinking about with special concern or special attention. And it's also an invitation to say, yesterday this marvelous thing happened in my life, or in, in whatever it was that happened. And people sometimes do, and other people really, I think it picks them up. And other people mention things that are really worrisome in their life, that people dear to them are imperiled in some way, sick, or in some sort of difficulty. So today at the end of the time, I'll say now is the time that we're mentioning, so you know what that's about. But I had the fantasy or the thought yesterday that sometime in this time of now greet your neighbor or say hello to the people next to you, we might after a while or sometime or seeing how you feel about it, I would like sometime before I sit to say to the person next to me or something, you know, I'm thinking about my friend Rachel who's really sick and I'm uh, going to call her later this afternoon and I'm hopeful I have a heart to be able to uh, talk to her in a way that's helpful. So that's what I'm hoping to happen as I sit this morning. And that they would say to me, you know, I'm going to pick up my child at college because they need to come home because they've entered into a depression or something that we could say to each other I'm here because I think this will happen to me or I hope I hope that I was feeling depressed about the news and I thought I'd be here among friends and that would pick me up that if we share our hopes with each other out loud that would be really an amazing thing so we won't do it today because I want to spring it on you (laughs) (laughs) So just think about it, just think about it. 
And I have <laughs> my friend Martha, uh, no longer of this world, but my very good friend for the last 10 years of her life, uh, used to say, used to come regularly to class, and she said, as soon as you say, look around and find someone to be your partner for this next part, she says, I run out to go to the restroom. I can't stand that talk to a partner business. So... <laughs> So how do you feel about that? How many people are in Martha's category? How many people are in the other category? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just think about it a little bit. I thought it would be very good for everybody if we read the Metta Sutta out loud before we started. And then we'll go right from there to sitting quietly. And because there are some new people here today, I'll give us some sitting instructions after we do that. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, not, not do the slightest thing of which the lies would later reprove, wishing in the rightness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or small, medium, medium, short or small, seen and the unseen, those living near or far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, may none sweet another or despise any being for any reason but none for anger or goodwill wish harm upon another. Even as a mother would give us life to her only child, with a boundless heart, should we, all living beings, idleness over all the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, Outward and unbounded, standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, happy even from Klaus's desires, is not born again into this world.
I take that line about not being born into this world as at least on one level, meaning not being aware in the next minute and the next minute and the next minute of struggle in the mind, of for this period of time, in the middle of our lives, the middle of this world, in the middle of this life and this body, that this mind can be at ease. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. When the Buddha said the third noble truth, peace is possible, (coughs) he's talking about peace of spirit, peace of mind. And the promise that peace of mind is a possibility in the middle of a life. I've been reading the instructions of a teacher named Vimala Ramsey who teaches in the Midwest and his principal teaching instruction is relax. In this moment, just relax. Sit in a way that's comfortable. Keep your hands wherever they're comfortable. Some people like to keep them on their thighs. Some people hold hands with themselves. We can have a room full of people and still have the sense of real silence around us. I mostly just sit. I don't feel uh, that I need to be looking for my breath or feeling my body. I feel like my body and my breath present themselves to me if I just sit here quietly with an awakened attention. I suppose the only instruction would be sit in a way that's alert so you don't fall asleep. But it's not terrible to fall asleep either. If your mind is tired, it will fall asleep for a little bit and then it will wake itself up.
sometimes as I'm, as I'm sitting awareness arises about the temperature in the room where it's cooler around my face or around the exposed parts of my arms that it's cooler than the rest of my body I am aware of breath going in and coming out of my body not so much at a particular point in my body some people pay attention at the nostrils and some at the belly I more or less feel my whole body expand like a balloon and then settle back down and expand like a balloon and then settle back down Sometimes I notice that at the edges of my body, around my arms and my face, that doesn't feel so clear where my body ends and the space around it begins. Because I have the habit of holding hands with myself I sometimes notice that I can't tell when one hand ends and the other one begins. And when I notice that, it has a very comforting feeling. Like on some level, this mind and this awareness is not separate from everything else in the whole of the universe. It's its own particular constellation of thoughts and feelings, but not unconnected to everything else there is. So we'll sit here for a while. Relax, rest, enjoy.
In a few minutes, I'll ring the bell. I've been thinking about um, my friend Ira, who grew up next door to me since I was four and he was six, until we both moved away from home, and with whom I'm still in touch, whose first great-grandchild is about to be born in Colorado, and how I'll get to visit him when that event happens. And I'm grateful for long friendships. I'm thinking of all the babies who are just starting their lives this month and next month, really hoping that there's some way that the planet endures so that it's as livable for them as it was for me. What are you thinking about? Blessings for my friend. We'll have open heart surgery on the 22nd. <clears throat> and may she have money.
there are other members in the community friends with all of these people, and I'm going to be seeing all of them when I go back east in October, hoping that I can somehow or other May all of the people we mentioned and all the people we thought of and didn't mention and all people everywhere be sustained and uplifted in their lives so that they in turn can remain feeling connected and companioned with everyone else in the world for as long as we all live.
I was just thinking this morning what <clears throat> I like reading the Metta Sutta out loud with all of you. You know, I wonder if they keep that up there all the time. That seems like a nice piece of wallpaper, doesn't it? I mean, that's just a nice background thing. Why, why would we have to... I phoned up uh, the other night uh, and said, could you put that up on the, on the wall? But why can't they leave that up all the time? That seems like a nice thing to have. I, I think I'll actually bring that up. Because the one line that I thought about this morning as we read it, read it together. One of the things I like to do from time to time is to ask a group of people to decide what's the most important line. Because I could pretty well make a case for every single line being the most important line. So, I, you know, it's, it's a trick question, what's the most important line. But this morning as we were reading it, I thought the most important line this morning for me is by not clinging to fixed views. I'll tell you why I think so. For this morning, anyway. It's a line that comes, by the way, from um, from the third faith verses of the third patriarch of Zen. Well, anyway, I'm not sure, it's, but I, just to show you, this is the faith verses. And uh, by not clinging to fixed views, it, the, the bigger verse is, um, the standard translation is, to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. So I have opinions which I cherish. You know, I have a lot of opinions. I used to joke about it a lot more um, years ago. I would, I, would, I would preface it by saying I come from a long line of opinionated women. And in fact, I do, actually, uh, in, uh, in a kind of uh, a way that I'm proud of. I, I don't have the feeling that I was brought up to feel that women had secondary opinions and that women were not in charge and... Uh, I, I, I very much thought my mother was at least an equal voice in the family of my father's, respected as well as heard. Um, and I, I was an only child and a girl, and I never had any problem about speaking up because people respected what I said. So I, I, and so I have opinions, my mother had opinions, but not clinging to fixed views. I, uh, I'll show you what I've been reading this week. First of all, this morning, in this morning's paper, it's a big headline that says, uh, President Trump could be forced to choose between science and his base because the impending release of a key government report on climate change will force President Trump to choose between accepting the conclusions of his administration's scientists and the demands of his conservative supporters who remain deeply unconvinced that humans are the cause of, planet, planet, of the planet's warming. Well, first of all, it's like, uh, uh, it's like very good news that he might, in fact, say, you know, I'm on second thought. It's about the climate uh, report that's about to come out. And particularly reading it this morning after seeing the Al Gore movie yesterday, 
was really wonderful to read that and that he might change even though it says that his base doesn't that's one of the things that his base it says does not respond to on the other hand one of the things in yesterday's movie which I just remembered as I was sitting here this morning I hadn't even written it down is that in the end of the movie Vice President Gore goes to visit a certain town in Texas Uh, who saw the movie goes to see a certain town in Texas where they are either 100% using uh, renewable fuel or almost. But they, they, at some point back, they made a decision that they were going to do this and it happened faster than they even said. They said, well, by 2020, we have to have done this and it's only 2017 and they're already at 90%, almost 100%. And it's not a small town in Texas, it's a city. He said, if we reach 100%, that's it, it's not quite 100 He said, if we reach 100% renewable energy as fast as at the speed that we're doing that, we will be the first major city in Texas to do that. And, um, and Texas is a big oil state. And he says with some pride this mayor of the town to whom uh, Al Gore is speaking, he said, and we are the reddest of the red states. Everybody in this town, we voted by X percent for President Trump. We are the reddest of the red, but in essence, we're not ridiculous. We have civic pride, and we can understand what's going on, and we understand that we have to use renewable energy and protect the planet. This is, uh, I'm not sure whether this is the man who said we have religious views, we're supposed to be stewards of this planet. I think it was another person, actually. I think it was the person who resigned from some cabinet position that he had recently because he said, I'm a devoutly religious man and I think we're supposed to be stewards of this planet and not despoilers of it, so I can't be here. So I, and I thought to myself, well, you know, okay, I changed my mind. Uh, that uh, I'll have to make my mind big enough to understand that people don't have to have all of my views in order to have some of my views. Because I've also been thinking, as you know, carrying around this um, Behave by Robert Sapolsky for several weeks now, and it's full of these little um, markers of important pages, and the whole thing is underlined. And I'm just so taken by it uh, about how the mind... Why we behave. The name of it is the biology of humans at our best and worst, and uh, how amazing the human mind is, and how much we do that's really extremely noble and wonderful, and how things we do that are deliberately terrible, and know that we're doing it. And uh, he said, "There's one line in it somewhere where it's talking about why we lie." And he said, when you ask, he said, everybody tells lies sometimes, or mostly everybody. He said, uh, when people lie, 
they tend to think about other people lying who lie as those are terrible people who lie because they really don't have good moral uh, fiber. And when I lie, it's because it's the most expedient thing and I just have to do it in those very extenuating circumstances. So that you make, you make a, a, a reason for yourself. I wouldn't do that. I'm not a terrible person in extenuating circumstances. But they, they're totally morally bereft. And it's interesting, I was thinking about it myself, about whether that was true, whether I do that. The, the movie was really... Um, Stunning to me again. You, I just sit there and I can't. I can't imagine how. I hope that everybody sits up and says, "Okay, that isn't a hoax." There are pictures of Hurricane Sandy and the flooding in the New York subways, coming up, rushing up the stairs of the subways. There are pictures of the uh, base of the World Trade Center where now there's a whole new memorial there, but at the, at the part of the shrine that it was flooded, that the waters of lower Manhattan all were up over. On, they show maps with uh, projections of where the water will come if it raises up another two feet or four feet or seven feet. There are also pictures of flooding in different countries of the world and people being rescued from floods. And they make the point, which we all know, I'm sure, that when weather conditions get more terrible, with more flooding or more droughts, that it's poor people who will be the worst affected. People who, first of all, can't move and go someplace else. You know, I... It's, it, it's true that I've thought sometimes about, well, I live... First of all, I'm old, so it's not going to happen right away. But my house, anyway, is up a hill. So it's not going to come here. But I think that kind of thinking about I could live on a mountaintop in the Sierras is not thinking, where is everybody else going to live? And, you know, that's the kind of painful thinking that I think, how come people aren't thinking that? How come they're not? I'll tell you some more about that movie, but then I want to tell you about more of... Well, let me see what if I... Maybe I told you everything about the movie. Did you know that the wind power in the world, around the planet, every year, if all of that wind power was harnessed... I mean, if we had wind farms all over the world, it would produce 40 times the amount of energy that the whole world needs. Period. Isn't that stunning? I mean, it's it's blowing out there. We could... And where it isn't blowing here, it blows in other places. So they could move the energy around. That they know how to do. It's just that people make a lot of money out of oil. But you think... Who could possibly, if someone came to you and said, listen, we have to take away all of your, the whole, uh, of your uh, fuel, uh, fossil fuel kingdom, do something else, and it'll save the whole planet for posterity. We do not say, of course, you know, 
and save the whole planet for posterity. But that's really what it amounts to. You know, the, I think this was the part that uh, I, I, I saw that Al Gore was getting choked up. He was showing the map of the spread of the Zika virus in, um, in, uh, uh, across the continent, across North America, I think also in South America. And he said, um, he said certain governments are telling women to put off getting pregnant until the Zika virus gets somehow uh, eliminated. They figure out the chemistry of uh, eliminating that virus. And I think to myself, uh, that's why I was thinking of babies getting born now. And how uh, when my babies were getting born, which is 50-some years ago, 60 years ago, the thing we... It never crossed our mind to think about what's the planet going to be like when they're grown up. That was not one of the considerations that we had. And in, in, in our particular case, when we were very young and, and first having children, we started with... We had college educations, but, but no money. And we didn't worry about how we would take care of them because... There were lots of opportunities. This was still the the um, the, the uh, country of opportunity that my grandparents all emigrated to. There's been lots of things on the television in the last couple of weeks about who would not be here if immigrants couldn't come, and uh, there have been different uh, different people have talked about. Uh, this is at least one person uh, in some prominent uh, position in the government was saying my, all four of my parent, grandparents did not speak English when they came. It's also true of my grandparents. They didn't speak very much English after they came either. Nor were any of them educated at all and they all worked as laborers. But their children went to city colleges which were which were free and their children went to colleges that were state colleges or free colleges or in the case of many of my relatives who got into really prestigious colleges they got scholarships and they went but they didn't but they had that and they had an opportunity to go to school equal with everybody else which seems to me having you know, grown up with that given as an understanding but you know the business of what you grow up in and what you understand and how much that shapes your um, point of view is tremendously interesting to me uh, in this book about why we behave the way they do, we do uh, most people vote the way their parents did. How many people here vote differently from how their parents? Well, that's a lot. <laughs> Maybe I'll stop and ask you why you changed. That's a lot. Um, because mostly points of view come along with it. I've been reading, uh, this is a new book and it just came 
two days ago, so I'm only halfway done. This is Jeff Flake. Do you know this new book? Did you get it? It's just published. It's called Conscience of a Conservative. And Jeff Flake is the junior senator from Arizona. The senior senator from Arizona is um, John McCain. He's a uh, Mormon and maybe the fourth or fifth generation of people in Arizona who came originally when there was a Mormon um, migration to the West and some people went to Utah and some people went to Arizona. And he talks about how much his uh, Mormon uh, upbringing shapes how he, his uh, political understanding is. And he writes about how deeply committed he is to a conservative agenda. And uh, when I started reading the book, when I bought the book, I heard him interviewed on television, and he said, my hero growing up was Barry Goldwater. I thought, eek. You know, that uh, I had very negative views of Barry Goldwater's hawkish view on Vietnam, lots of views of Barry Goldwater. But here I sent away for the book. I sent away for the book because I thought, let me really read what a real conservative is, because what he was saying on the TV is that a real conservative is not anything like what we currently have as a president. And if you said, are you a conservative or a progressive, I would definitely say, oh, I'm a progressive. And what progressives believe and uh, what I don't believe. And it's very much put yourself up by your own bootsteps. It's that kind of... Uh, and my grandparents came and my great-grandparents and they homesteaded. And why is this making this... You think it's something that I haven't done? I'll put... It did stop. I have to clip it. Okay. Um, and I, was, I had one particular interesting memory this morning. He, I was reading that he was saying, my relatives came and they homesteaded and they took care of themselves. And their principal credo was uh, a, a, a good person takes care of themselves. They don't ask other people to take care of them. And... Um, so the idea of social programs that help people who are uh, disadvantaged are anathema. And I read it and I think, ah, well, what will you do with all... And he's interested in open immigration and uh, he has lots of other views that I share with him. And I'm thinking he's talking about growing up Mormon in a Mormon culture that's very devoted to taking care of the community, to take care of each other. They have a culture of thrift and of savings and of putting aside for a difficult time and of taking care of the community. You should always have a certain storehold of things that will take care of you and anyone in the community who falls into need. So it was a different kind of a person is responsible if they take care of themselves, and I'm thinking to myself as I read, and if they are homesteading land that they get, and they because they already have the land, and they're being able to work in a growing country that they have some access to making a living in.
I grew up in my my grandparents and my, my my grandparents came and were helped when they arrived by an organization called the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Association. It's now 130 years old or something. I looked it up this morning, and its uh, its acronym is HIAS H I A S. And when I, I remember as a child talking to people who came to visit, and my, my family spoke Yiddish because my grandparents did, and all relatives would come and they would talk about how did you get here and how did you get started, and they said, well, I started from Hayas. They met me at, the, at Ellis Island, and they got us transportation to Manhattan. They found us places we could live with other people until we could rent an apartment. They helped us find a job. They, whatever they did, and uh, help people find English language classes. Hayas still exists. Uh, I had not for, for my whole entire life uh, thought to send a contribution to Hayas. But uh, after the immigrant ban, uh, just after Mr. Trump took office, uh, I saw an ad on the television, I think, or came, maybe came through my computer, and said, you know, when we started an organization, we were an organization that helped people get used to living in a new country and getting started, and we helped people who were Jews. They said, over the years, we've changed. Now we help immigrants, because we are Jews. And I really like that sentiment so much. It shouldn't be limited to Jews, but now we're in a situation where the immigrants who are coming are not, for the most part, impoverished Jews who are running for their lives. There are other people who are running for their lives or trying to be in a safe place, trying to start again. And we know how it is to be about that. So I sent quite a tidy donation for a first donation to an organization. And uh, I guess I sent it online, and I got a phone call the next day from Hayaz. <laughs> that said, you know, thank you very much. Can we send you more material? Very nice. <laughs> but and really, it, you know, it was a tidy donation, but not that much. But still, I felt like, okay, I want to recognize this kind of thing. But I realized that my whole childhood was shaped by you take care of people who need help, not you help yourself. You know, especially if you're in a situation where you can't help yourself, you can't speak the language, nobody gives you land to farm or homestead or anything else. The, the, you know, uh, Mr. Flake's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, um, came to Arizona before it was a state. So I don't know how he got to the land. And but you know, there are lots of things that Jeff Flake says that I'm really happy to read. He says, um, the nativist impulse is always destructive that means it just does nobody else. From a very young age, you know, growing up in a ranch country, you get to know immigrants intimately and honestly. You learn through experience how indispensable they are to making things work in America.
We need to return to the politics of comedy and inclusion and reject the politics of xenophobia and demonization. There's the dehumanization of vast groups of people based on nationality or ethnicity is the worst of what's going on. This dehumanization is a symptom of a bad impulse being surrendered to. He said when the, when the Mormons moved to Arizona, moved out west, there was a manifesto written. One of the, uh, there, were, there was a, a manifesto, the Missouri Executive Order 44, that said Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated and driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Their outragers are beyond all description. And that, that's a quote. One of, and this is Jeff Flake saying, one of those outrages presumably was Joseph Smith's vocal opposition to slavery. And the governor's executive order was the culmination of years of anti-Mormon sentiment spurred by what were perceived as Joseph Smith's designs on taking over American civil society. A manifesto was written and signed by, by hundreds of Missourians, including elected officials, that, had, that, that preceded the extermination order, calling Mormons a pretended religious sect and deluded fanatics. Mormons then have had foundational and horrifying experiences with some of these worst impulses of mankind and became both refugees and immigrants in our own land. And so when someone starts talking of religious tests and religious bans, we know better because we've seen all of this before. When a country says, no Muslims or no Mexicans, we might as well say no Mormons because it's no different. We know firsthand that America was not made great, was made great not by giving in to these impulses, but by fighting them and defeating them. So, just to tell you, I'm halfway through this, but I think to myself, huh, you know, uh, then he goes on to say what conservatism is, and I think, oh, really? And at one point he's talking about fake news, so we know about fake news and biased broadcasting. And then he said, every, every so often, I get again an email, rail, something comes over the internet, railing against the fact that members of Congress get free health care all of their lives, even after they're retired. Did you, did you know that? Yes. They don't. They don't. I looked it up. I'll go look it up on the internet this morning. That, but There you go. <laughs> Somebody said that. They don't get free health care ever, number one. I, you look it up. It says, when they are active duty serving in the Congress, they get very good health care, that same as any other federal employee. They have the option of buying into any one of a number of health care plans. It used to be, uh, before the Affordable Care Act, there was something else that they could buy into. But now, just like everybody, 
But even then, they had to buy into it. But now, just like everybody, they buy into a healthcare exchange that's listed with everybody else. And it is true that the government pays 72% of their payment. So the, they do get a, a, a stipend from the government to pay 72% of their health care payment, which is significant. So it is a good perk to work for the government. What I had heard is they have that for the rest of their life. They don't have it for the rest of their life. They have access to buying health care on the exchange after they're out of government for if after they retire or they're out of government if they served at least five years and um, and then they can buy it on their own on an exchange but they're not getting the federal help for the 72% anymore but somehow I got enough of those things that say we want to have the same health care and it's such a good thing to believe because then you can really say, look at those terrible guys, look what they're doing. <laughs> it's not true. So I thought, ah. So that mind opens a little bit. Let's, let's just see. So now I'm also reading. Is this interesting to you? Because I want to know about how you change your mind. This is a new book. I can't remember. Maybe it was one of you who told me to read it. Um, this is a book by Arlie Russell... Hochschild, H-O-C-H. Did somebody here tell me to read that? Someone. Is one of the most influential sociologists of her generation. She's the author of nine books, including da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And her books have been named as the New York Times Notable Books of the Year. The reason that I liked this book, I am enjoying this book, although it's hard to read, is she decided, as probably she thought about, as probably all of us have, why did the Christian conservative make it just making a big label? Why did the whole evangelical vote, why did the whole Christian conservative vote, in spite of all indications that it was not going to go in their favor, that in spite of the fact that they benefit from the Affordable Care Act, it, it really disproportionately, it turns out. Why did everybody vote for it? So she goes, takes, a, I think, six months, she said, and traveled through the South, particularly through Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and talked to the people that you're probably seeing on TV these days. You see this where a reporter says, now I'm going to Joe's Diner in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I'm talking to them. But you ever see those? talking to the people and they, and they say what do you think of President Trump oh he's fine he's doing good you know if they just let him do his thing it would all be good in the meantime you read this book and she's talking to people about what's going on in their towns and terrible is going on in this particular case what I was reading this morning is she's talking to somebody who lives in a town where an enormous sinkhole has opened up all of a sudden and is widening all the time. And besides that, before the sinkhole, the streams were already polluted and the rivers were polluted and the fishing, you can't eat the fish. They, they show a diagram in here 
of what it says. If you have to eat the fish because there's no other way you can get protein, and, uh, and obviously if you can't afford the fish, then this is how you should cut them because the lead gets uh, um, concentrated in the fat part of the fish. So cut the skin off and then take off this fat part and then broil them on a grill so the rest of the fat will melt out. It's horrifying so that you won't be ingesting them. She started, she has, this is, I'll read you a part of a conversation. And Bobby Jindal is the governor of Louisiana. She's, and she's talking, she's talking to one of the people there. First of all, they're very nice, the people. They're extremely nice. This is south. They're very polite. Here's the pictures, by the way, of how to cut up a fish. So, and he says, um, bad government, that's the problem. You have to have less government. It's not so much that they like this government, but they have less government. They said government has become too big. Government is taking over your life. Uh, and he said, uh, that it doesn't matter if, the, if we raise taxes, it just goes for the heads of government, it doesn't go to the people. Look, my the sinkhole is happening, and it's the problem of government, not the problem. It, and it is partly the problem of government agencies not regulating, but not the problem of government per se. Uh, he takes, uh, this guy takes him for a ride. They go past his Catholic church, Catholic grade school, Catholic cemetery. He says these people had good values. The nuns were great teachers. They lived very modestly. All public servants ought to be like those nuns, he says. They don't need much. They don't need much money. Why does the government need so much money? They take so much in taxes. But I was thinking over about the the sinkhole and the disaster, and uh, and in essence, wasn't uh, and that it had happened because there wasn't enough regulation. But and Governor Jindal had advocated free market and small government, and look what had happened. But Mike had voted for him on those very grounds. He had cut public services, lowered funds for environmental protection, installed pro-industry laws. The state hadn't functioned to protect the residents of that bayou, and in the minds of some, got the main blame of that. But she, she calls this always the, the great paradox, is people see that life is getting worse but they are so stuck with the idea of we should be doing it ourselves, that the government, we don't need any government, nobody needs any government. And, and she keeps talking, Sarah, Arlie Hochschild, about not having any empathy. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, I don't want to maybe even know if I want to admit this over a, a broadcast that's going who knows where. But you hear something like an enormous sinkhole opened and a tremendous amount of disaster happened. Uh, But uh, the people there did not vote for the government that presumably would have, or stronger EPA, or stronger this or that, and have a momentary thinking of, ah, they deserve it. You ever think that? 
I've, okay, I feel better about that, but worse about all of us. You know, it's, it's you know that if I, if we were all seriously thought it over, if we all thought it over, we would say idiots. But then we would say, listen, I feel bad. I really feel bad that people, for reasons of unclarity of understanding, have brought that onto themselves. And that really my being mad at them doesn't do anything except make my own mind into uh, its own sinkhole. Really. Isn't that true? So she, she said, I went on this whole trip to bring myself over the empathy wall because I felt I had built a wall between me and them. I was thinking this morning if I have to think of a title to tell Dharma Seed about what's the name of talking this morning, I would say, talk about us and them. That all the us and thems I make make it more impossible for me to say, may all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, except those people who voted wrong and are messing up the planet. You can't say that. You really can't. And I think that... um, watching cable news, even reading the newspaper, exit on somehow. You have to be on this team or that team, us and them. She says, I went on this whole trip in order to have empathy because I felt like they were not like kin. So she said, I'm listening to him and I feel the empathy wall is getting higher, not lower. So she says... uh, she had been, had been asking him about what's bad about the government and you know, a bunch of things. I said, well, I changed the question. She said, well, listen, let's do it the other way uh, I, because I was stuck on my side of the empathy wall. What has the federal government done for you that you feel grateful for? He pauses. Hurricane relief. Then he pauses again. Then he says the I-10. This is a federally funded freeway that goes through. And he thinks a little bit more. So, okay, unemployment insurance. He had been unemployed for a little while and he'd gotten unemployment insurance. I suggest the Food and Drug Administration inspectors who check the safety of the food. Yeah, he said, I'm grateful for that. How about the post office that uh, delivered the parts for that machine that you just showed me that you put together and built? He said, that came through FedEx. (laughs) How about the military in which you're enlisted, ROTC officer? Yeah, yeah, he said, okay, the military. How about the 44% of the state budget that comes from Washington, D.C.? He thinks. He says, most of that goes for Medicaid. And at least half of the recipients, maybe more, aren't looking for work. You know, by the way, I'm really learning about that because I remember when, when you hear about that and I heard about that, that the recipients of, of government aid programs are not looking for work. I thought, uh, I, I remember back President Reagan saying welfare queens and the specter of welfare queens and you always somehow were led to believe, maybe through picture or through something that the association was with people of color, Chicago women of, old women of color with numerous social security cards or something. 
when I read um, Hillbilly Elegy, did you read Hillbilly Elegy? It's now first on the bestseller list, Hillbilly Elegy by J.C. Vance, I think. Vance is his name, who grew up in Tennessee and Kentucky. And he said, I have seen, well, you know, it talks about the numbers of middle-aged white men on disability addicted a little bit to drugs and with um, at least a little bit and uh, largely using um, those scooters to get around which by the way you get free from Medicare, Medi- Medicaid if you need them uh, who he says don't work because you can't prove that people have, don't really have a backache that everybody has a, not everybody, but frequently people hurt their back and they can't work and then they get payments like not um, SSI, disability insurance and the, um, uh, the pay scale is so low and the work is so ungratifying that it's reasonably easy to live on disability insurance and you can't prove you're not disabled. And so Vance, who they said some enormous number, like 40 or 50% of working age white men in one of those states don't work. And he said, he says this very sad sentence. He said, I have seen welfare queens and they're white and they live in Tennessee, and which is where he grew up. So, you know, it, it's, it's not untrue that as a social problem, but then the problem doesn't end with those people. It end, maybe it goes on to why is, why is the pay scale so poor that people would rather not work if they can just marginally get by? Why don't we have, and, and what, what will we do years from now, not so many years from now, when um, more things are automated and there is no work for people to do. You know, that I think that we are the demographic of people who don't need to be in work all day, out of work. We're either there because we're old enough to be retired or we're in a situation where we don't have to work that kind of a 40-hour week or um, we're being supported by a family around us. And we are not at odds with ourselves because we want to be here practicing together. I imagine if we... How many people here belong to a book group? How many people are taking a course somewhere other than this? Two courses somewhere other than this. How many people are working as volunteers? We figured out what to do with unpaid time. Largely because we are educated and reasonably affluent and we can do that. But there are people who can't do that. And so I end up not thinking, oh, he's right, he's right, he's right. I end up thinking it's not easy to know. Maybe right and wrong is not even a good question. These are the circumstances that lead to this. There are so many questions there are, there are demographics about uh, it makes a difference what year you came to the United States. It certainly makes a difference 
because my father came through Ellis Island with practically no paperwork at all. I think they uh, they looked at his uh, uh, whatever it was, uh, not a visa or, or whatever he had. Maybe it was a visa, and they looked at it. it his name on his birth certificate is Retman R E T M A N Shore S C H O R. Uh, he was born in Poland, where apparently Retman is a name. Uh, he said they looked at his his visa, and they're marking him in, and they say, we don't have any Retmans in this country, so now you're going to be Harry. <laughs> so he was Harry. You know, as a matter of fact, my other father-in-law is also... My, my father was Harry. My father-in-law was Harry. I think maybe that was the in-name. <laughs> Because they all came more or less at the same time. And maybe my, and I never saw my father-in-law's birth certificate. Maybe his name was also something else, like Retman or Boris. He came from uh, Russia, so he, I don't think Harry is a name in Russia, come to think of it. But it's, and they came from people who really, really came because they thought this is the place that you're going to get educated and if you got educated, then you could have a life. That was because education had been denied in Europe to Jews. They were largely kept beyond the pale, literally. And do you know that word, the pale of settlement, that in, uh, you can't live any nearer to the inner cities. You have to live beyond the pale. So the idea of you could get an education, I think that's been true of... Met, uh, of um, immigrants of all kinds of ethnicities. My husband is a graduate of Bronx High School of Science. It's a very wonderful public free high school in New York where some of its students travel up to two hours each way on public transportation to get there and home every day. They admit people from the five boroughs of New York have to take a very difficult test to go in. It was all boys when he went there. Now it's equally boys and girls. It does stress the sciences. And when he went, which was in the 1940s, 1940s, he said it was 90% the sons of Eastern European Jews who came not because they were necessarily smarter than anybody else, but their parents put them on that track and said, this is the way out of poverty. And what's more, as people will know from any number of jokes, if you are part of the tribe, that you, you succeed if you're a doctor or a lawyer, maybe a dentist, anything else. <laughs> you want to play the clarinet, you do that on your free time. <laughs> That's... Hmm? No, 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 there's actually a joke about that where three women are talking and one says, my, my son, he's a doctor. And everybody says, oh, good. And the second one says, my son, he's a lawyer. Everybody says, oh, that's good. And the third one says, my son's a rabbi. So what kind of a job is that for a nice Jewish boy? <laughs> but they were really looking for a way out of poverty is what they were doing. But... He was back there visiting a couple of months ago. He said, very, very definitely, it's, uh, uh, the school is people of color. 
by a vast majority, and uh, they are they are every kind of color. Uh, lots of people from uh, India and Pakistan. Lots of people from Korea and Japan. Um, there are some students who are European ethnicity, few, and they're, they're largely Russian. They're, they are Jews, actually, but they're Russian Jews. Not so many of them, very small minority now, because the immigration patterns have changed. But now is a whole new group of people whose parents are all working two jobs. He actually spent some time with the administration and talking about how they, uh, uh, they also serve breakfast in school. And uh, the, they just serve because many of their people come from families that are beneath the poverty line. And uh, it's already... Um, Here's this one particular student who's traveling two hours this way, two hours that way. But they're also doing remarkable things, these young people, and getting into schools. So to have an America that's welcoming, and welcoming to get all kinds of people, and educate them. So when I read this and it says, you know... um, I think some... Anyway, whatever it is, I, I, it's it's really been a very good experience for me. First of all, to to read this book, because I feel, as she does, heartbroken for people who have elected a government that isn't going to be helpful to them, in both cases, on the state level and federal level, but who feel that they're in there, uh, who have believed you have to help yourself that it's morally incorrect. To ask for help, uh, and other people who are, you know, I'm in the position that I'm in. Anybody's in the position that they are, not only because of the genes that they came out with, but who took care of the and the bodies they came out with, which are certainly largely governed by the genes. But what I'm learning from Robert Sapolsky is that not all are governed by the genes that. So much has to do with what your mother ate while you were pregnant and the air that she breathed and who took care of you and how old your next sibling was when you were born and whether you were a twin and uh, what church you did or didn't go to and what the history was happening at that time. I didn't know until I saw that movie yesterday that uh, a large piece of the influence of Syrian of the Syrian exodus has to do with the repressive government there, but a major piece of it has to do with the drought that happened so badly there because of the climate climate change, and that if the droughts continue, I think what's happening to me from reading, I always think of my too depressing. I, I, I actually think I, f- I feel better. I feel better telling you about it too, because what I am learning is um, that you just don't know. You just don't know. Somebody has a particular point of view. I really like Jeff Flake. Someone asked him on one of those interviews I saw on TV 
Are you going to run for president? You look like a, not like a Republican we could like. Are you going to run for president? He said, no. He laughed it off. He said, with a last name like mine, you cannot run for president. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, there he is. And, um, and there's that, 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 that city in Texas that voted completely differently from the way you and I did. And they have almost 100% renewable e- fuel economy. So I think, oh, this is a good place to end for today. Um, I've been telling people recently when they say, what's your practice these days? And I think that usually they expect I'll say, well, I sit, a half hour, or I do some X amount of yoga, or I go to the gym, or I uh, walking meditation, this, that, prayer. I say I'm really trying to make sure that my that my mind stays free of enmity. I get annoyed. We talked last week. Anybody see the Dalai Lama film since last week? I gave such a big plug for it. It's good, isn't it? Isn't it? I like the scene where he says, I want my last thought to be when I'm dying. I hope it's an altruistic thought. I think it will be. Unless my plane falls down. And then it might not be. Maybe I'll shout. I like that so much that he leaves room for being a... (laughs) being a regular person. So if I see uh, something happen to somebody who, I think, they deserve it. And I think, wait a minute, that didn't feel so good. I did tell you last week, I hope I mentioned last week, about how much better I felt about George Bush. Did I tell you that? Because he, he, here he is as a person, and I, you know, he's a person admiring the Dalai Lama, just as I am a person admiring the Dalai Lama, okay. Then George Bush goes from my list of ach to my list to another person in the world. And it's another name off that list. May I be free of enmity and danger is the phrase I want to practice. I don't go around all day saying, may I be free of enmity and danger. But I do go around, I hope, alert to what I'm thinking. Ach, wait a minute. Don't do this. Somebody needs to be forgiven. Susan, what? You know, what Susan's asking, what do I do about the president? I really hope that he's removed from office or, or resigns before too much terrible happens. I think he's not a competent person. I think he's accidentally a force of history of so many things, propelled him into a position that he doesn't have the beginning of an idea of what to do with. And... Um, it's like protective custody. I don't, I don't think anybody should do something terrible to him. They just should start at this point. This morning it looks like everybody's worried about whether or not they, you know, they have to worry about whether he's going to fire off a nuclear bomb. On, I don't think he will. I, I, I actually imagine that they've got plenty of people watching him that he won't. You know, but, and the sooner that he gets moved out, maybe we have a collective regroup. Uh, I liked so much that uh, Al Gore at the end of the movie 
some major setback happens. Oh, they, he's, the end of the movie is about the climate change signing accord in Paris and all these people standing. And people who have done lifetimes of work are all congratulating each other and hugging each other. It's great. It's such a wonderful scene. And the next thing you know, here is Mr. Trump comes in and he says, I'm taking us out. So number one, he can say it, and it can't even begin to be implemented for a few years. I think he'll be out before then. And now he's talking about maybe rethinking it. He already gave a hint about rethinking it. So I think very much about um, really protective custody. He's not, he's not the forces of history. He didn't alone make himself the president. Tons, really obscene amounts of money from different kinds of interests made him president. And it's an accident. He doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, and he's being controlled by other people. The other book I read, by the way, is the book about Steve Bannon, um, Devil's Bargain? Devil's, what's it called? I think it's Devil's Bargain. And that's really scary. I decided not to scare you with that. <laughs> it's enough scare for today. But you know, if I come together with people who think the way I do, I feel better. Do you? Yes. yes. So, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to say that was so helpful, Sylvia, because I think what you made clear for me was that I can think of Donald Trump as the president. I think so. I sometimes have fantasies about people coming in at some appointed time saying, Mr. Trump, come with us. <laughs> I don't, you know, may they do that. May he exit in good health. Honestly, that would be better than anything else. And it's a mistake that he got elected. It's not only a mistake, it's probably, it may, it may even be incorrect. May have been that the election was manipulated someplace else. But it's protective custody. And then more saner minds prevail. What I, what I like most about Jeff, uh, Jeff Flake is he's saying there used to be a time when people on both sides of the aisle talked to each other with comedy, with discussions. He also said in the early days of the town of Snowflake, Arizona, which was founded by his great, 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 whatever, a grandfather, they decided they had to have um, a town council. And for, to, in order to make things work out so that you had shared different of opinions and you could debate, they said, okay, this half of the room, you're going to be Democrats, and you're going to be Republicans, so we can air all the views together. That's a fantastic idea. May we all go out inspired to make a difference in the world. And I'll see you next week. May all beings be peaceful and happy.
I'm so glad to see you. I wanted to um, introduce my daughter, the doctor. Oh, <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> What's your first name? Sarah. Sarah Collins. Oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. She looks like you. Yeah. I enjoyed this so much. She looks like you. What kind of a doctor are you? Interventional cardiology. Wow. Wow. What does it? My husband is having an echocardiogram at this very moment. Is that what you do? I redone it, sort of, but I'm responsible for putting in the stents in the angioplasties when someone's having a... Wow, I'm so excited by that. I mean, that's really, uh, um, like, uh, uh, I'm not When my husband decided after medical school that he was going to be a psychiatrist, his mother said, all those years you went to medical school and now you're throwing it away. Because her idea of doctors was interventional. They ran in the middle of the night. Yeah, there's a big aspect of that. Well, there are like 50 women in the specialty in the world. Hi. One thing that really resonated with me speaking today was the empathetic component because I'm naturally very empathetic. I miss my mother and my father is the same way. Um, but the, my patients who are not taking care of themselves, um, I really am having a challenge with um, because they keep coming into the hospital over and over again with very entitled. Um, attitude, and so I take. I have to take a lot of time, you know, seeing them four times a year, and they cost the hospital million dollars a year, and they expect us to just, like, almost with a regal sort of entitlement. And these are all medical patients, um, so I'm really trying to work through that. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Actually, you brought that up. Uh, 86 years old. He has a. Uh, 